you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. We started Nehemiah back in April. We took a long break. We got back to Nehemiah last Sunday, and now we're going to keep it rolling. I like the way our church does this, and I think you will too. It's such a cool thing to uh, study a book together, walk through it week after week, same thing. You know where we're at. You know where where we'll be next Sunday, and that's what we're doing here with the book of Nehemiah. Last week, we covered all of chapter 1. Today, we're going to start at chapter 2. We're going to go down to verse, uh, verse 10. That's what we're going to look at today. Nehemiah chapter 2. It was the fall of the year 2000. And my wife, Valeria, had just enrolled for classes at North Greenville University to start college here. And it was the first time that she had ever been to the USA. This is 23, so she's been here now 23 years. So she was starting college around that time, fresh out of high school. She graduated high school in Ecuador. And she had come here and not knowing anybody at North Greenville. At the same time, the fall of 2000, I was on my third different college, had transferred twice, and I was starting classes at North Greenville. We had two totally, totally different paths. But by the time I graduated in 2002 and she graduated in 2003, we had found each other and the rest is history. She came from Ecuador and I came from North Carolina. We met in college at South Carolina and we have built a family and a home in Fairdale, Kentucky. Can you imagine? And we get asked a lot, you know, when did y'all meet? How did y'all meet? What's your story? Of course, people are always asking couples that. And it's pretty obvious to us to say the Lord brought us together. God did it. How would she have found a college in a different country And how often does somebody go to that many different colleges in order for them to finally meet their wife? And that's our story. And so it is easy for us to say God was in it. God was working in us. And I bring that up to say that the Bible is teaching us That yes, in hindsight, we are to look at our lives and say, I can see how God was working. I can see how God's hand was in that. I can see how the Lord worked through that situation. And we're all pretty good at that. Of course, you all know the expression, hindsight's 20-20. We can look back and see how God was working. The Bible teaches that. But the Bible also teaches us that we would believe now that even though we don't see it and understand it, that same working is going on. We didn't know it in 2000 that if, we, if I transferred to that school that I would end up meeting her and then one day we would have a family. I didn't know that. But I was to believe then the same things that I should believe now. That God is working in it and you may not see it and understand it, but you are to trust him through it all. The passage in Nehemiah today turns in that direction chapter one which we looked at last week reminds us that Jerusalem had been overtaken it had been captured by the king and Babylon the Jews had been taken into exile and some time had passed now 
Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. You remember that? He lives in exile. He lives around the king. And some of his buddies, one of his brothers, had traveled back to Jerusalem just to check on it, see how things are there. And upon their return, in chapter 1, Nehemiah asks, so how was it? And their answer in chapter 1 is not a very good one. It says in verse 3, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. It was a bad report. It's not what Nehemiah wanted to hear. It broke him. He ends up praying and fasting. He's broken down. He ends up praying to God. And what comes out of that prayer is what we get here in chapter 2. Read with me, if you will, chapter 2, starting in verse 1, all the way through verse 10. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Narratives are fascinating, aren't they? We like stories. And I'd like to remind you all, church, of how interesting the Bible can be. The Bible gets a bad rap of how boring it can be. And there's not a lot of people can't wait to go home today to just sit down and read it. I know that. But if you will engage it at so many points, the Bible is fascinating. It's a good story that God has given us. This story of Nehemiah is a good one. And I hope that today, by the end of this sermon, you're getting that. Nehemiah has now found himself in an interesting situation. Remember, he's the cupbearer. And I told you that last week, what it means to be the cupbearer. He is kind of like a security bodyguard for the king. He has to drink everything 
that the king's going to drink beforehand so that he knows, so that they know that it's okay. And that's our setting here today. My first point this morning, number one, is carrying a burden through life. Carrying a burden through life. Here's why I say it. At this point in chapter two, it has been four months. If you didn't look up the the months on their calendar, you wouldn't have picked up on that. Look what it says in verse one. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king. Well, if you go back to chapter one, verse one says, now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year. And so from Chislev to Nisan, it has actually been four months. If you didn't ask, you didn't look that up, you just thought that this was rolled straight from one day to the next, or you thought chapter one to chapter two was maybe the same day. But this has actually been four months that Nehemiah has gotten this report. Verse three, he gets the bad news. Verse four of chapter one, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. This rocked him. He hated this report, and now he's been living with it for four months. It wasn't a different bad news every day for four months. That's what Job was dealing with. But it was a bad news that weighed so heavy on him that he carried with it for four months. Life presents us in situations where we get a bad news, we're able to shake it off, and tomorrow we've forgotten about it. And sometimes life presents us with situations where you get a bad news and a burden and it does not go away. You carry it with you. You should know enough right now about life that there are many of us here today carrying a burden. It was with us last Sunday, it was with us all week, and it's with us here again. The Bible teaches us this If you start at chapter 2, verse 1, we see the setting here that in that month, which was now four months, he was taking wine to the king. Fitting. That's what he does. That's exactly what he does. So a normal day for Nehemiah. I took the wine up to him, and I gave it to the king, and I had not been sad in his presence. At first you think, well, that's that's an interesting note. Why would he say that? Why does it matter? Well, Remember what his job is. He has to always be convincing the king. It's all good, king. It's a great day. Everything's fine under your reign. Here's a drink. Be merry. That's his job. One commentator speaking to this says, on him being afraid, says, cupbearers whose task it is to assure their masters that all is well should not look sad and concerned. Think about that. A cupbearer should not be looking depressed. But because of the situation, the heaviness of the burden, God's people in God's place, Jerusalem, are in bad shape. He's showing it. Now, what's really neat about this is that it's not so much this outward thing. Look what unfolds next. He even says, I had not been sad in his presence. So Nehemiah is thinking I'm carrying this burden, but I really don't want him to know it necessarily. It's been four months. The king has not picked up on it. 
that what's happening there in Jerusalem is bothering his guy, the cupbearer. He's carrying this burden. But now the king notices. And in verse 2, he says, Why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? Hey, I'm picking up on it that something's wrong, man, and you're not sick. What is it? What's bothering you? What's going on? Why the long face? What's happening? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Remember, I said that you don't have to be a special or significant person to be the cupbearer. But the result of being the cupbearer is that you spend a lot of time with the king. And here we see that the king has observed him. It's been four months, but he can tell that his heart is burdened. He can tell that his heart is burdened. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then we see Nehemiah confess, I was very much afraid. And obviously so. Nehemiah here is carrying this burden through life. Last week I told you all about genuine concern and godly grief. You remember that from chapter 1? The genuine concern that he had for Jerusalem, God's people, and God's place. And the grief that he's now experiencing as he cares about people is starting to express itself somehow. He's not necessarily outwardly looking all that upset and frustrated. He's still a cupbearer doing his job well to the king. But somehow he has noticed. And that means the king is concerned And now that means Nehemiah is afraid. What we see here in chapter 2 in the beginning is that Nehemiah is now carrying this burden through his life. And church, I want you to understand that carrying a burden through life is real. May we not be those type of people that think we're not going to have burdens May we not be those type of people that think, well, if I believe in God, then everything should go well, that life should be easy. May we recognize that life can be burdensome. Jesus Christ himself said, in this life you will have trouble. Jesus said that. And the Bible gives us example after example after example of people who carry a burden through life. You know Job's story. Job lost his property, and Job lost his possessions, and Job lost his children, and just continued to suffer through tragedy. And he just lived with that heavy burden. You know about Paul and his struggles. You know about Paul having a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. You know about Paul asking God to get rid of that, and he lived with this. He says three different times, I prayed to God about this, and yet he carried that. You know about Jesus praying in the garden, so burdened that the Bible says it looks like he's sweating drops of blood. And he literally asks his father, can this cup pass from me? Let this cup pass from me. We could go on and on and on of examples in the Bible where God shows us God's people living their lives with a burden. Church here today, we've got to be an honest church about what real life and the real faith life is like, what the real Christian life is like. And that is for you and I to recognize life can be burdensome. 
We're not here today trying to create burdens. We're not here trying to make ourselves sad. We're not here trying to make ourselves depressed and woe is me. And let's just say that there's more glory or honor to saying how hard life is. Not at all. If you're here today going, man, I walked in here today kind of skipping and hopping and smiling and singing my favorite song. I don't really feel that burden. Well, praise the Lord. We rejoice in that. That's an aspect of life too. But we must also be honest that life does have burden at times. One commentator speaking to the sadness of life says, sadness is a part of life and godly people are sometimes grieved and experience very deep sadness. In fact, when this encounter happening in the month of Nisan, it appears Nehemiah has been in this state now for about four months, fasting and praying on behalf of Jerusalem. Sadness and grief are normal emotions for people who deeply care. And that's the point I was making last week on what it means to grieve. These are normal emotions for people who deeply care about others and about their pain and their difficulties and especially the loss that they are experiencing in this fallen world. Nehemiah's emotions reveal that he is just an ordinary man who experiences various emotions like anyone else. He's there doing his job. His people come back. He says, how is it? They give a bad report and he feels it. And now here we are four months later. He's still doing his job. He didn't quit his job. He didn't take off. He's still doing his job well but he's carrying that burden through it. Church, you need to be reminded that there are lots of people these days carrying a burden. There are. We're not to be judgmental. We're not to condemn people. We just read an awesome passage in Thessalonians about what it means to do good as much as possible in every situation to everyone. It's good for us to be reminded that they're burdened people and we are to treat them well. I just want to throw out a few things that come to mind. I know some young married couples that are struggling to get pregnant. That's difficult. That is a burden to carry, is it not? Especially when we put a picture up of babies that are born and we love the growing nursery and there are get-togethers of moms with newborns and things like that. That's a burden to carry if you're unable to get pregnant. But you know what we also know? We also know of some older married couples or middle-aged married couples who never got pregnant. Different category. They've been carrying that burden for a long time. I remember one time I had a couple come that had been married two years and they were so burdened that they had not gotten pregnant yet. And I remember introducing them to a couple that had been married 30 years that never got pregnant. See, this is what it's like when you start to reflect upon burdens. Nehemiah here has been carrying this for four months, that simply doing his job before the king has now brought about that the king is recognizing, man, this is my guy. This is like the, he takes a sip of everything that I sip, and he's feeling this. Man, what's, what's wrong? What's going on with you? I know some parents that do have children, and I know some parents that have two children, and both of them have some level of autism. While we celebrate the way that God makes all kids, we understand that this can create burden. One of the two children is severely autistic. And that family's lives have many challenges. Challenges that the average person or home never even considers. And this is an incredibly heavy burden to carry through life. Every single bit of their life has been altered because of that. And that is a burden. 
We could go on and on with the burdens that people carry, but I give you this example of a young couple to an older couple, neither having kids, to a family that does have kids, just to get you thinking about everybody is in a different position with a different experience, having different burdens. And the Bible teaches us that we carry burdens through life. We will often have to carry the burden through this life. Which leads now to my second point as this passage moves right along. that The Bible teaches us not only that we will be carrying burdens through life, it's a fact of life, but the Bible wants us encouraged to trust God while burdened. Number two, trusting God while burdened. We often think, I wish it wasn't this way. You have said that before. I know you have. You've prayed that recently. Perhaps you've prayed that this week. I'll be honest with you. I've prayed that this morning. I wish it wasn't this way. And sadly, we will often say, I wish it wasn't this way and praying to God that. And sometimes, because God is not changing it, we will conclude, I'm not going to obey God then. I'm not going to trust him or believe him. I've got a good excuse, and I'm going to do what I want to do in this situation. But the Bible shows us a different way. The Bible shows us that we are to trust God even while burdened. We are to believe that he's a father that loves us. We are to believe that he knows what he's doing. We are to believe that even when we can't see it, he's working in and through it for a good reason. We are to believe wholeheartedly to trust in the Lord with all your heart. We are to believe wholeheartedly that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And we might confess, God, I don't see how you're doing this for my good and your glory. But we are to believe that he is. You see this with Nehemiah. Look with me at verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? So now he opens up. Nobody's brought this up. The king hasn't brought this up. He's not sick. It's not that obvious. But the king finally asks. And so Nehemiah basically unloads. Why why wouldn't I be sad? The city, the place of my father's graves, where I'm from, my hometown, it lies in ruins. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. So the king said to me, what are you requesting? He didn't request anything. But he senses that there's a burden here. And so the king now asks him, what are you requesting? I love this next line. If you want to underline something encouraging, underline this. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king. Isn't that cool? What do you call that? You call that a short, quick prayer. That's what you call that. Nehemiah is there delivering the drink to the king like he normally does and the king says what's wrong with you why are you so sad and Nehemiah freezes in that moment says he's very much afraid and then he finally answers back and he says why shouldn't I be afraid place where I'm from everybody I love the people of God are in shambles The king says, so what are you requesting? And in that moment, Nehemiah's like, here's my chance. This is the open door. 
For four months, I've been praying and fasting, right? Four months. He's been broken over this. He's been beaten down. He's been praying and praying and praying and praying. We don't exactly know all that he's been praying, but chapter one gave us five through 11 of a lot of verses of prayer, right? And in that moment, the king says, what are you requesting? And it says, I prayed to the God and I spoke to the king. In other words, bam, real quick, it was God help me. God give me words to say. God, give me grace here. God, open a door. I mean, I don't know what he prayed. He probably didn't say it out loud. He's looking at the king, and in his mind, he just glances to heaven by faith and speaks to the king. Praise the Lord for that, right? People miss little things like this all the time. Here's a man of God who four months has been praying and praying and praying. He's been genuinely concerned. He's been godly grieving. He here is carrying a burden through life, and now he's trusting God while he's burdened. Perhaps he's been praying to God for an open door. We do that, right? There's a guy I know in Fairdale that I see all the time. Walks around. I see him walking everywhere. Good guy, got a job, all this. And I give him rides all the time. Every time I see him, I just stop and he knows me, I know him, he hops in. And I finally said, enough's enough. I've given that guy too many rides. And you know what I prayed this week? I said, God, of course I was preparing this sermon, so my my prayers are getting better because of this, this this sermon, I said, God, I ask you that I get to pick him up one more time. And when I pick him up this time, we're going to talk about Jesus. Nehemiah inspired me to that prayer. Nehemiah inspired me to trust God even in that. Because notice here, he says, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, what an awesome thing. And here's what he said, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you would send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. Nehemiah knew what he wanted to do. Nehemiah said, somebody's got to go do this. Somebody needs to go back there and go to work. Somebody needs to be trying to make a difference here. And I I got all the excuses in the world why I shouldn't go. I mean, I'm here. I got this good job. I'm the cupbearer. I'm not really a builder or a contractor or a carpenter. I don't really know how to build castles or build castle walls. But somebody needs to do this. So, God, if you'll open the door, I'll ask. And if you'll be gracious to me, I'll go. That's his prayer. His, His request is that you would send me back that I may rebuild it. Now, we know that Nehemiah is a praying, praying guy. Chapter 1 gives us a long prayer, but I just want to show you a couple things. Chapter 4, verse 9, and we prayed to our God. Chapter 5, verse 19, this is all throughout the story. Remember for my good, oh my God. So he's praying there. Chapter 6, verse 9, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking that their hands will drop from the work and it will be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. 6, 14, remember Tobiah and Sambalai, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And so he's praying to God there. You can go on and go on to chapter uh, 13, keep going on. There's example after example after example of Nehemiah continuing to pray throughout his life. He prays when he's working. He prays when he's alone. He prays when he's by himself. He prays big, long prayers that we have passages of. He prays little short prayers where they don't tell us what he prays. He says, I'm talking to the man right here face to face. He asked me something, and I just glance with a prayer to God. Nehemiah was a praying guy. What's that tell you? That tells us that even through all of the burden that he had, He was trusting the Lord. Even through the sadness, 
even through the knowing that, man, the ministry of God, the glory of God, the witness of God, the kind of reputation of God, it's all been beat down. It doesn't look good right now. Nobody thinks the Jews are these chosen people. Nobody thinks the Jews or the people of God are loved and safe by God. Nobody thinks so. Their city's destroyed. Their walls are destroyed. They're scattered everywhere. And even this guy who's a believer is here serving a king that hates God and his people. I mean, it doesn't look like it. And guess what Nehemiah is doing? Through that kind of miserable, godly experience. It's just not what he wanted. He wished that it wasn't the case. He's trusting the Lord. He's doing his job every day. He's praying every day. He's being good to the king every day. He's admitting, I wish it wasn't like this. But he's trusting the Lord while he's burdened. Church, you and I need to embrace this type of Christianity. Christians, you and I need to embrace this type of Christianity. The Bible teaches us that we can pray and ask God to change things, and he does. God answers prayer. He'll open door and change circumstances. He'll turn lives around. He does. But he doesn't always do that. Do you remember in Philippians 4 when Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? You know what the all things were? Be poor, be cold, be sick, be hungry. That's Philippians 4. I've learned, he says, in all of those situations, God will strengthen me if I trust him through it. That's Philippians 4.13. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? Where they said, oh, king, we're not going to bow down to you. We're not. And our God can deliver us from this fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship you. We're going to listen to God. You see that? They're, they're in a fiery furnace. They're supposed to be at the end of their lives. And they're going to trust God through that. When Paul was praying in 2 Corinthians 11 about that burden that I mentioned already, the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan... And he said he prayed to God, God, would you remove this? Take this away from me. Make this situation different. You know what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians? God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. When you're weak, I'm strong. My power is made perfect in your life when you're weak. The very thing you want me to get rid of, the burden you want me to remove, I'm going to keep it right there so you keep depending on me. I'm going to make you needy. I'm going to make you dependent. And Paul had to learn to trust God while he was burdened. When Jesus Christ himself prayed in the garden with drips of blood, God, let's go a different direction. Is there any other way? Let this cup pass for me. You know what his next words were. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If you say this is what I'm going through, I'll trust you going through it. I will believe your promise that you are with me always. I will walk in obedience, walking by faith, not by sight. We just sang in the old classic hymn, I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is what? Small. Child of what? Weakness. 
watch and pray, find in me your all in all. The Bible teaches through and through that you may carry a burden through this life and you can trust God through the burden. One commentator speaking about this neat little prayer of Nehemiah says, arrow-like prayers, and I like that, right? Arrow-like prayers. Arrow-like prayers are an instinct of a heart that is already given over to a life of prayer. You and I know that Nehemiah is not just reaching for his uh, genie in a, in a bottle type of thing. He's not reaching for his lucky charm. He's not needing some direction from God. And so he's like, hey, kids, where's your eight ball at? Let me shake it and see what God's trying to get me to do, which is what so many people do. That's not Nehemiah. Nehemiah's been praying and praying, seeking the Lord. Nobody thinks for a second this is the first prayer he's thrown up to God in a while. Nobody thinks that. Nehemiah talks with God and walks with God. So when he throws that arrow up to God on the spot right there in front of the king, he's talked to God about that already. I remember a story that I heard that has stuck with me for several years. I heard this story a long time ago, but I didn't have any like details in it to be able to look it up. It took me forever to look it up. There's a story that comes out of the 1800s that there were some pastors that were having a debate in front of a congregation. Uh, I don't even know what they were debating but there were two guys up on stage in front of a desk and they were having a debate about something in the Bible. And one guy would state his case and the other guy would state his case and they were going back and forth. It was, a, it was, a, it was supposed to be a good thing. And the guy over here, as his opponent, you might say, as his opponent was stating his case, this guy was just jotting down notes and jotting down notes and jot, he was listening and jotting down notes and he was, seemed to be writing the whole time. After the debate was over and they were talking, a lot of people were saying, man, what was he writing down? And they ran to find his notes. And when they picked up his notes, all it said over and over again was, more light, Lord. More light, Lord. More light, Lord. Isn't that awesome? A written down prayer in the middle of a debate that's just saying, God, give me more. God, work through me more. More light. Nehemiah is afraid right now. Nehemiah is sad right now. Nehemiah is burdened right now. But he is trusting the Lord and he is praying to God in this situation. Praying was Nehemiah's natural reaction. He had shaped his entire life through the discipline of prayer. You see it already and we're just halfway through chapter 2. And you know what happens next? His prayer was heard and answered immediately. Look what happens. Verse 6. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him. Look, I don't know a whole lot to say about that. But the commentators and the people who have studied this a whole lot more than us find that extremely fascinating. They wonder if maybe the queen knew Nehemiah better. They wonder if the queen just had her woman influence on her man. But they, they, we don't know exactly why the queen is mentioned here, but it shows us that. And that's really cool. I've got nothing more to, to enlighten you on that, though. Verse 6. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. 
and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. Look at this. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Y'all, if you go back to Ezra chapter 4, starting in verse 17 through 22, it is this king who has made a law that the walls cannot be rebuilt. Anybody trying to rebuild Jerusalem so they may gain back their strength and their identity will be punished. Stop the work. It is this king, Ezra 4, look it up. And now, through Nehemiah's position, through Nehemiah's humility, through Nehemiah's faith and praying to God, the king is now answering his request and sending him. Folks, we need to believe that God is with us, God is working through us, and that we can trust God even when we are burdened. We see this with Nehemiah. So number one is that we will carry a burden through life. And number two is that we will be trusting God while we are burdened. But then finally here this morning, I want us to be encouraged to see Nehemiah's faith-driven determination to make a difference. His faith-driven determination to make a difference. Verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. Does everybody see that? He's the cupbearer. He's not that significant, okay? The king is the one who is now wanting the people of God in Jerusalem to be suffering. He's the one who has ruled for them to stop building it back. But specifically because of Nehemiah and the faith that Nehemiah lives with and how he's proceeding through life trusting God as a praying person, now the king is granting him, hey, go, go, go rebuild it. How long are you going to be there? It doesn't tell us how Nehemiah answered that, but it pleased the king with that answer. Okay, you can go, all right? Well, Nehemiah, in being the faithful man that he is, again, it's been four months, but apparently over four months, he's been kind of planning and rehearsing. He's got a lot of things together. For when the door was finally opened, Nehemiah was ready to say, okay, you finally asked. Here's what I need. I need letters. I need timbers. I need approval. I need this. I need that. Nehemiah was ready for that. He didn't go the next day and, and beg for that. He didn't work himself into the situation to kind of like push his way in. He was being a good cupbearer. He was serving the king. He was trusting the Lord. He was faithful to God. He was faithful on his job. But as soon as God had opened that door and started to answer to prayer, he's like, okay, well, here's what I'm going to need here, and here's what I'm going to need here. And on the road, I'm going to encounter these guys, those governors, and they're not even going to believe what I say. It, the, the, the king that put a stop to it is now the king sending me. They're not going to believe that. So I need you to give me a letter that proves that you're saying this. And then you get this amazing detail in verse 9. Look at the second half of verse 9. See, if you're just reading your Bible and you're in a hurry and you're not paying attention, you miss this. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Why? He loves Nehemiah. Why? Verse 8. 
the good hand of my God was upon me. Why? I've been praying about it. Why? The Lord's working in and through me. God is working through Nehemiah in this situation, which by all accounts is a negative, discouraging, burdened situation. It is. And guess what's happening right there? The glory of God, the working of God, the purpose of God through one man's faith-driven determination to make a difference. We're only a chapter and a half in. His brothers come back from Jerusalem. Hey, guys, how is it there? It's awful. He's burdened. He's grieved. He goes to pray. He's fasting. Four months pass of him burdened. The king says, why are you so sad? Dear God, help me now. Why wouldn't I be sad? Everywhere I'm from and the people I'm from and the God that I believe in, the one true God, it's all a mess. Well, what are you requesting? I ask that you'd let me go back and rebuild it. How long is it going to, how long are you going to need? He gives him an answer. Next thing you know, an army is headed back to Jerusalem with all the wood that they need, the letters that they need, the approval that they need, because one guy, Nehemiah, whose life was not beautiful, he didn't have it all together, he didn't have all the money, it wasn't pretty, he was burdened, trusted the Lord. And you and I know Christians all day long who are ready to give up on faith and ready to complain against God because a situation isn't going the way they want it to, where the Bible doesn't teach us that. The Bible teaches us that heaven is coming soon. I was reading this week in Luke 14. And you know what I came across? You will be repaid in the resurrection. Luke 14. How many times you heard a Christian say, well, when's it ever going to work out for me? Or when just can I ever get it? Nothing ever. I mean, I never get my attention. Or, you know, I've done so much for other people. When am I ever going to get repaid for that? You know what Luke 14 says, the words of Jesus? You will be repaid in the resurrection. Trust God through the burdened life, knowing that God knows completely. God had his hand on Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a praying man, and now he is a confident man in God. He was afraid in this passage. You remember that? I mean, just a few verses ago, he's afraid to talk to the king. Now, the king is behind him, pushing him with horses and an army to go back and not do what the king wants him to do. See, that's not really a part of the story. He's not going to do what the king wants him to do. He's doing what he wants to do by faith for the glory of God, and the king is helping him do that. There's a big difference there. Don't miss that. We need to be believers. We need to walk by faith. We need to understand that going in this direction or that direction, as burdensome it may be, God goes with us. Faith-driven determination to make a difference. Commentator Betts says this about the passage. He says, how believers conduct themselves before unbelievers will go a long way in gaining the ear of those unbelievers when speaking about things concerning the kingdom of God. Nehemiah applies, listen to this, because some of y'all may have picked up on it. Nehemiah applies the words of the prophet Jeremiah to his own life. That whole seek the welfare of the city that comes out in Nehemiah 2.10, that's a popular phrase in the Bible. You've probably heard that before. But Jeremiah was the first to say it. Listen to what he says. Years earlier, the Lord had spoken through Jeremiah, who wrote those words in exile, saying, Jeremiah 29, 
Same passage as 29.11. For the, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Everybody knows 29.11. 29.7 says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. And in the throes of fear, Nehemiah continues to trust God and obey his word. Jeremiah has taught that no matter where you find yourself, do your job. Be your best. Make a difference there. If you're going to live in exile, make the place of exile better. If you're going to live under a rule king, a, a bad ruling king, serve him well. Do your job. Be faithful. Nehemiah does that. And now with the good hand of God upon him, we see this. He has an army escort. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. Now look back down here at verse 10. Okay, and I'm, I'm going to leave you here kind of with a cliffhanger going into next week. In my Bible, there was a break at verse 8, but I'm, I'm breaking us off at verse 10. But when these two guys, Sambalot and Tobiah, when they heard this, okay, it displeased them greatly that someone was coming to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Y'all, it's just a fact of life. What God is leading you to do, there are going to be people that don't like that. What obedience is leading you to do, there are going to be people that don't like that. You think Nehemiah cares right now whether these guys approve or not what God's telling him to do? If you were marching back to your hometown, Jerusalem, to rebuild the city that had been destroyed, shame to the glory of God, and you had an army behind you by a king that was supposed to be the one persecuting you that's now supporting you, right? And two guys are trying to stop it and say, hey, we don't approve. No, Nehemiah had the power of God working on him and through him, and he was empowered. That's why I'm saying faith-driven determination to go and make a difference. It is Remarkable. Listen how this one commentator says it. People of faith recognize that the hand of God is on them. And I'll be honest with you all, when me and Valeria got to college, I wasn't thinking anything about that, I don't think. In hindsight, I see that the Lord was working in that. But today in my life and today in your life, may we recognize from this passage that God is working through all of these things, even the burdened days. He goes on to say that even though Nehemiah apparently gave forethought to what he needed in order to go back to Jerusalem, he realizes how it all happened providentially by the hand of God. Just like with Esther, and you remember this phrase, just like with Esther, it was the Lord who brought Nehemiah before a king for, quote, such a time as this. It was the Lord who led Nehemiah to his important position as cupbearer. Hey, if he hadn't been cupbearer, he wouldn't have been in that position. It was the Lord who orchestrated that Nehemiah would receive the report he did from his brother concerning Jerusalem. It was the Lord who heard Nehemiah's prayers. It was the Lord who gave Nehemiah the opportunity and courage to reveal his concerns and needs to the king. It was the Lord who moved in the king's heart and directed his course of action. It was the Lord who provided for all of Nehemiah's protection and provision to carry out the mission. And it was the Lord who led Nehemiah hundreds of miles from Susa back to his home and people in Jerusalem. Nehemiah gives credit where credit was due. Moreover, just in case there is any question, Nehemiah clearly states that all he requests comes to pass. 
Nehemiah's grand entrance with the king's escort in Jerusalem makes a strong statement both to his enemies and to his people. He comes in strength, not weakness. All by the hand of God. Not because he was strong. Not because he was so great. Not because the best construction company in all of Israel had showed up. But because one person who trusted God, prayed about it, and God sent him. He came in strength, even though he was weak. He was afraid, he was afraid to even speak to the king just moments before. Four months had gone by burdened. This sort of faith-driven determination is what it's like to be a Christian. To believe in Jesus and know that your sins are forgiven. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he was dying to deal with our sins. And when he died for our sins, he was receiving the punishment of God. So when somebody trusts in Christ and believes, they are then brought into the family of God. They become a child of God. God becomes their father. And from that moment on, we trust God. We are believers of God, and God is working through us. Church here today, like Nehemiah, may you be the believer that believes God. And in the face of burdens, and in the face of concerns, may you trust him. And upon that trust, that faith, may you be driven May you be determined to live for God. May you look to him and settle, hey, here's what he wants me to do. Here's what I'm supposed to do. Here's what God says to do. Here's what obedience looks like. Here's what faithfulness looks like. And by trusting him, may you do it. Many people we know are struggling to process what it means to live with a burden. I know I am. What does it look like to live burden, to live with this trial, to live with this struggle, to live with this frustration? What does, it, what does it mean to live for Jesus, the Christian life by faith, thinking, I wish it wasn't this way? May you put your faith in a really big God who knows what he's doing so that you too might say what he said there, the good hand of God was upon me. What will it do for your life and your situation? What will it do? What will it do for your life and your situation if by trusting in Christ you affirm the good hand of God is upon me and I will proceed by trusting in him? God forgives of sins. May we trust him. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for Nehemiah and his story. We thank you, God, for the good hand of God upon us. God, I pray that by faith we would understand that your good hand of God is upon us as well. Father, we pray that you would forgive us of our sins and help us to think rightly about this burden. And God, we can be honest about what it means to be burdened, and life is often burdensome, and it's hard and difficult, and we feel that. We pray for your help. Father, help us to trust you through it. And we pray, God, like Nehemiah, that we would have a faith, determination to live for you.
Help us with that, God, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.